things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Um, if we go down to verse 14, it says, The word became flesh and made its dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the, own, of the one and only Son of God, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Our second passage starts from John chapter 20, verse 24. Jesus appears to Thomas. Now, one of the twelve was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hand and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Through the door, though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. The purpose of John's gospel. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Jesus and the Miraculous Catch of Fish Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel from Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go out with you. So they went out and got into the boat. But that night, they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, Friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, Throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals. There were fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some fish, bring some of the fish you have just caught. 
So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of sorry. It was full of large fish, about 153 of them. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, "Come and have breakfast." None of the disciples dared ask him, "Who are you?" They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them. They did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus had appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Thank you. Well, friends, let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, John, as he wrote this gospel, he tells us his purpose that he's written so that we might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing we might have life in his name. And so we pray this morning that as we read these words, you would speak to us by your Spirit. Remind us, or perhaps for the first time, grant us the life that is found in the name of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, friends, I've already mentioned to you my good friend Sam and the book that he's written. Well, he's uh, just a couple of years older than me, and I like how realistic he is about life after 40. Uh, let me read this for you. Certain things change when you turn 40. The world starts becoming too loud. You get excited about going to bed. You still get badly hurt, but now you don't have a good story to account for it. He says the fact is when you're under 40 and injured, it's usually because you were doing something exciting like jumping out of a plane or wrestling a shark. If you're over 40, your most serious injuries just come from sleeping. And for those of you who are under 40 and chuckling away, like it, it really is like that. You can afford to that. And those of you who are over 40 and you're looking at this young pup up here thinking he doesn't know the half of it. That's all right. But I think we all know the reality of it, don't we? That our bodies are frail. Uh Joel on the screen for us, top-tier athlete in the states, Damar Hamlin was reminded of this as was so many who saw it happen when he suffered a cardiac arrest mid-game at the peak of his physical capacity. It's amazing to see the way the media ran with something like that because it is so jarring to be reminded of just how fragile we are. The good news is he's making a good recovery, but our bodies are indeed frail. And they're kind of weird, aren't they? I mean they've got weird things like fluff in your belly button, the flakes that fall out of your head when you scratch your hair. And they're smelly, noisy, Let's be honest. I mean, I think at times we can be very uncomfortable with our bodies. And at times, and even for very long seasons, we can be ashamed of our bodies or it can feel like we're at war with them. For some of us, our bodies are the entirety of who we are. So the way that they're projected into the world and perceived by the world, that that totally impacts the way that we kind of view ourselves. But for others of us our bodies are almost totally separate from who we are and and that has a whole host of other ways that that's expressed. But whatever the case might be, I think for many people it can be hard to see much hope for our bodies. But the Bible teaches us that there is incredible hope for our bodies to be found in Jesus. Three reasons for us to consider of that this morning. Jesus 
honoured our bodies by becoming flesh. Jesus knows our broken bodies because his body was broken too. And Jesus shows that he hasn't finished with our bodies because he hasn't finished with his. So first, from those opening words of the Gospel of John, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, through him all things were made. Without him, nothing has been made. Nothing was made that has been made. You see, in the beginning was the Word, and and this is talking about God the Son, the one through whom all things were created. If we read Genesis 1, we're told that it was good. Genesis 1 tells us that, that human bodies, they weren't just good, they were very good. That it is very good that human bodies are physical, that we're made from the dust. That it is very good that human bodies are sexual, that we're male and female, the same but different, procreative, unified. This is very good. We're told in Genesis 1 that it's very good that human bodies honour God, that we are created in his image, that humanity is unique in all of creation as God's representatives in the universe. John 1 reminds us, all of this was made through the Word that was with God and that was God, and it was very good. And yet it's not all good now, is it? We, we know that too well. Because, well, in Him was life, and that life was the light of mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus is that light, and the darkness will never overcome it. But the point here is that There is darkness. And so our experience of our bodies is not all good. We are confused about our physicality, about our sexuality. I think we're even confused about the, even the concept of the goodness of our bodies. And what's God's answer? Well, as Yashi took it to us, took us to it there in verse 14. That word who was in the beginning, through whom everything was made, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Now, we're still in January, right? Well, that one short sentence, that's John's description of Christmas right there. No mention of mangers, shepherds, angels, but this is Christmas according to the Gospel of John. The word became flesh. Now, John literally says, when he says he, he, he dwelt amongst us, he pitched his tent with us. You see, when the Son of God moved in, he didn't build his castle of impenetrable rock. He pitched his tent and he made his dwelling amongst us in the midst of all our temporality, our fragility. Actually, on that note, while we're talking about Christmas, this is the one problem that I have with that wonderful carol, Away in a Manger. Some of you might know there's a line in there that says, This little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. And I think, really? I'm not too sure about that. Jesus didn't just seem human. He became flesh. I don't think the little baby Jesus pooed his pants and then spoke up to his mother and said, oh, hark now, Mother Mary, my swaddling cloths, they've been soiled, but these little hands can't fix it. Can you, so can you please do that for me? No, I think, I think the little Lord Jesus did what every other human baby in the history of humanity has ever done. He screamed the house down until one of the sleep-deprived adults finally got the message and wiped his bottom clean. It's a beautiful carol, but that's a terrible line. Because the Word became flesh. 
and he made his dwelling among us. I think that's the first great hope for our bodies. But while we've got that on our screen, there's something else that's really helpful to note here. Did you you notice there that John doesn't say, the word took on flesh? As if the real Jesus is just a spirit who then put on a body like he needed a coat so that we could see him because he was invisible and then he'd take it off again when he was finished. He became flesh. The creator, think about this, the word who was there at the beginning, the creator became embodied. Could anything dignify the experience of embodied human life, more than that simple phrase, he became flesh. And I think it's helpful here just to pause on this for a moment and understand that this is what the Bible teaches about us all, that we don't just wear our bodies, we are bodies. We share this in common with Jesus. He didn't take on flesh, he became flesh. And we've got to see just how different this is from from the mindset of the world around us and the way that so many people see our bodies. I probably should have chucked a picture up on this, but most of us have seen it on a billboard. The world's largest, highest grossing film in the history of cinema, Avatar. Its sequel is in the movies at the moment. The whole premise of the story is that our real selves are something different from the body that we live in. The real you is your soul or your personality, your psychology. And this can be separated off from your physical body, which too often kind of constrains or fails to to truly represent who you really are. And so, in the world of Avatar, the movie, the lead character, Sully, he's freed by technology from his paralysed body to live as he's meant to live, freed in his Avatar. Or consider, even in the real world, I think it counts as the real world, the grand vision of Mark Zuckerberg for his um, his company Meta, which aims to take Facebook from just a social media platform to kind of a whole whole of life digital experience where we were unconstrained by our physical body and our limitations and those strange smells and sounds that it makes. Now that's that's the dream, that's the cutting edge of our technology. And John 1 says that the word became flesh. And this reminds us that this is the only way to be human. We are bodies. For all of the conflicted relationships that we have with our bodies, they are us. It's not me and kind of it. This is me for all of its limitations and its fragility. And I think for some of us, that's that's kind of mind-blowing to get our heads around. But I want to take it even further for us. Because at this point, we've reflected on how we are like Jesus. But it's also helpful for us to see how we are not like the eternal Son of God, the Word that became flesh. Because you see, before Jesus was born, God the Son was. Before the universe was created, God the Son was. In the beginning was the Word. He always has been. And then there was a point in in time, about about 2,000 years ago, where he became flesh, where he was conceived and gestated and given birth and he started to breathe and then poo and cry. And in this way, we are different from Jesus. Because the Bible does not teach that I existed before I was conceived. I celebrate my birthday on September 7. And I've never had the awkward conversation, never felt the need to ask my mum and dad about it. But I presume, doing the maths, September 7, I was probably created sometime in January 1980. Awkward thought. 
Now, the Bible says that God knew me before the beginning of time. He, he, he knew the, the number of days that I would have. He had created good works for me to walk in. But whilst he knew all of that, unlike the eternal Son of God who has always been, I needed creating. And I was created when I was embodied. Like every human being other than Jesus, you and I were created at our conception. You see, the Bible does not teach that we're disembodied spirits floating throughout eternity until God decides to drop us into a body like a computer game where you sort of, you know, here's your personality dropped into the particular colour car that you're going to race around the track. Now, we we are embodied creatures. You didn't exist until you were conceived. At that moment, you were fearfully and wonderfully made, says Psalm 139. See, this is the dignity of the unborn child. And it's the dignity of our bodies, that they are us, not just a vehicle to carry the real me. And God chose to so dignify our bodily existence by participating in it himself. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Isn't that wonderfully good news for people who live in bodies? Because God not only understands us, as the one who designed us and made us and sustains us. He's lived it too. So I think we have a great hope for our bodies because Jesus dignified them by becoming flesh. And that takes us to our second reason for hope because Jesus, well, Jesus has already lived in a broken body. It's interesting, isn't it, that I think most of our pictures of Jesus, most you know, artists' impressions, of the man that lived 2,000 years ago, show him to be someone that you think he'd be fairly naturally drawn to. He's half-decent looking, he's got a friendly smile, a twinkle in his eye. And yet of the very few things that the Bible says about Jesus, about his physical appearance, I should say, it says a lot about Jesus, very few things that it says about his physical appearance, one of those few things that it says is that he was actually very unimpressive. God 53, Isaiah 53, we've, we've, we've already read from. God was preparing his people for a very unimpressive saviour, humanly speaking. You see, we read this anticipating Jesus to come. He, he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Which makes me wonder just how realistic those pictures of Jesus are with that captivating smile and those twinkling eyes. And not that I'm telling you that he was physically disfigured. I just just don't know because the Bible doesn't tell us, but it does say this. And I think this is wonderfully encouraging for those of us who feel really self-conscious of our own appearance and just how undesirable it seems to us. Because we're reminded here that Jesus, he really became flesh. He shared in the ordinary experience of very ordinary embodied life in a world where so much is judged on outward appearances. But actually more than that, not just the outward appearances, Isaiah 53 continues. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hid their faces. He was despised. And we held him in low esteem. Friends, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us and he was unimpressive to look at. And he suffered the fragility 
of embodied life in a broken world. For all of his glory, this saviour from God would be unimpressive to the point of being despised and, and rejected. People would turn their face away. So for all who feel the shame of a body that just doesn't measure up to other people's expectations, or maybe even the pain of a body that doesn't measure up to their own expectations, the Son of God knows what that feels like. In fact, the hope that we find in Jesus is that the Son of God knows just how vulnerable our fleshly life is, right? The Gospel writers, they are very real about his real humanity. They go to lengths to show us that that Jesus got tired. He got so tired at points that he escaped to the wilderness to be away and alone. We're told that he got really thirsty. There's a particular episode, he gets so thirsty that he walks up to a total stranger in the middle of the day to ask for a drink. We're told that he got really hungry. And in fact, his appetite gnawed away at him that like the rest of us, his defences were down, that in his hunger, the devil saw an opportunity and knew that Jesus was particularly vulnerable to temptation. Jesus knew the fragility of embodied life. Now, we might start to think through, but he never... What about all of these things? He never experienced the the pain of a miscarriage, the death of a child, for example. He was a single man, never had children. And yet we see that his heart broke as he wept for his people, as he felt their suffering, their oppression, and a deep compassion for them in a way that I think any parent amongst us is actually incapable of really feeling. You know, it's also true that he never knew the challenges of old age. He died at 30, 33, never had to deal with the gradual loss of capacity that comes after you turn 40 or, I don't know, whatever follows. And yet, I only try to imagine what it must have felt like for the Son of God who had the strength to spin the the stars into motion and yet picture him as a little kid in Dad's carpentry workshop when he works out he, he hasn't got enough physical strength to pick up a hammer. Talk about wrestling with your own incapacity. Simply because he had chosen to become flesh. We know life in broken bodies and he knows it too. And he knows it to the extent that he's submitted to having his body broken for us. We've celebrated that in the Lord's Supper. I'm so thankful to excuse me, Sam Albury for highlighting a whole bunch of things in this really helpful book. But among them is a great insight into Jesus' final hours. After Sam's kind of recounted the excruciating pain of the scourging, the beating that Jesus received at the Romans. Sam goes on to point this out. He said, we're then told of the crown of thorns thrust onto Jesus' head, which, along with the scarlet robe, was meant to be a parody of the claim that he was a king. We don't tend to stop and think about this aspect of his suffering. But such a crown was very bloody and painful. And those of us familiar with the wider biblical narrative note that thorns were a part of God's judgment on the earth in response to Adam and Eve's sin. So Jesus is literally being crowned without curse. All of that demonstrates that Jesus was no stranger to the extremes of physical suffering. When we find ourselves facing severe pain, whether through illness or injury or the brutality of others, we can be assured that Jesus is not unsympathetic. He is not unsympathetic. He understands our pain and turmoil. He gets it. 
we can turn to him. And friends, that real physical suffering, well, that points to Jesus' real physical death. He, he really died like we do. Only, of course, unlike us, his death, well, it was never inevitable. It wasn't just a foregone conclusion. He laid down his life. He chose to die. Because at the end of it all, Jesus came to give hope to our bodies by rising again. See, this is, our, this is our final point, which came through in that surprising account that Yashi read for us from the end of John's Gospel in chapter 20, the surprising account of Jesus' body after his resurrection. I think the first thing that we should note is that Jesus really bodily rose from the dead. All of the Gospel accounts are really careful to make this clear in a whole bunch of different ways. Here, we've got John telling us about Thomas and his doubts. I mean, Thomas gets a gets a hard right doesn't he for his doubts you know i kind of think honestly it's fair enough after all people people don't actually rise from the dead we remember them their legacy might live on but people stay dead so thomas's doubts they're fair enough the other disciples tell him we've seen the lord but he said to them unless i see the nail marks in his hands and and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side i will not believe So it's really clear that the disciples knew that they had seen Jesus. They weren't thinking they just had some visionary experience. They'd really seen him in the flesh, risen from the dead, which of course Thomas had trouble believing, which of course is why Jesus then offered him exactly the evidence that he needed, his physical body. They didn't just have a chat, a special meeting of the minds. No, it it was finger on flesh, hand on side, It was a real resurrected body. That's the same body that as that story continues, this wonderful little story, actually there's so much we could say about it, but for this morning, the guys go on a fishing trip, they see Jesus on the side and they have breakfast together. Because only real physical bodies eat. You know, Luke shows us that in another episode where Jesus shows up and he's worried that the disciples think they've seen a ghost. So he says, well, have you got something to eat? Because I'll have some because ghosts don't eat. It's a real physical resurrection, body and all. And then the concept that Jesus' resurrection is a prototype for all of us. He's the first, you know, one off the production line. He's the first fruits is an image that the New Testament uses a bunch of times. He is like the first fruit of the harvest, which says, whoa, gee, this is a good plum. We've got plum trees at home. This is a good plum. And I can look forward to this, this whole tree full of currently green plums just ripening and the harvest that is to come. And so the New Testament says to us, what happens to Jesus will happen to us. His resurrected body points forward to ours too. And so I think there are two massive reasons for hope in this. You know, first, because there's hope in seeing that there is something the same. There's something meaningfully the same for our resurrected bodies but also that there's something radically different about that. That came through in what we read from John's Gospel, right? The hope that we have in seeing that some things carry over, there's a continuity with Jesus' Jesus' body before his death and after his resurrection. I mean, for one thing, he shows up and his disciples, they know him, he's still the real Jesus. They've got the hope of a continuity of relationship 
with the people that we cherish. But it's remarkable to see that for all of the wonderful you know, miracle of the resurrection, this body dead in the ground, raised to life. All, I used to be a medical doctor. All, all, I, am, I don't get that. All of the medical things that would have to change to make that body alive again. And yet Jesus, for all of the healing that's taken place, he still carries the scars there is a profound continuity between the things that were done to his body before his death and the resurrected body that he had. Now, we need to be really careful not to speculate about this too much as to what this looks like for us because the Bible doesn't give us a lot of detail. But I think there is a great hope that God dignifies our lives and our bodies by granting eternal significance to the things that we do with our bodies now. New Testament has heaps to say about that. It's not trivial what you do with your body. So there's hope for our bodies because some things stay the same. But I think the great hope is that we see that things are totally different. Uh, For one thing, we read this in John chapter 20. Um, It was easy to gloss over, but we, we read there of the account when Jesus appeared again to his disciples with Thomas this time. A week later, the disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them this time. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. The doors were locked and yet Jesus just showed up. It seems that in his resurrected body, somehow he's not stopped by stone walls and wooden doors. No wonder he had to say to them, peace be with you. It would have been terrifying. How did you get here? But actually, John's not alone. This is not a one-off kind of account of this happening Uh, the supernatural amazing changes that took place in Jesus' resurrected body. Luke gives us similar accounts of Jesus just showing up inside a locked room or disappearing from the meal table once he sat down with his friends in the town of Emmaus. Um, Even his departure reveals something very different about his physical body. This is Luke writing uh, the book of Acts and the account of Jesus ascending to heaven. He said uh, that after he'd been speaking to his disciples, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid them from their sight, they were looking intently up into the sky where he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white uh, were there with them. And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come back the same way that you've seen him go. There is something very, very different about Jesus' resurrected body now. He can appear out of nowhere. He can disappear into thin air. He can physically ascend into heaven and the clouds will hid him and and one day he will return. My three-year-old son is smart enough to ask, how does that work? I don't know. (laughs) The Bible doesn't tell us. But in fact, the Apostle Paul, he considers the very question in in chapter 15 of of 1 Corinthians. With what kind of bodies will we be raised? What's it going to be like? Because Christians for 2,000 years have struggled to get their heads around it. And his point is that it's, it's a futile question because it's about as predictable as looking at a bunch of seeds and trying to picture the plant that will grow out of them. We bought some sunflower seeds last week. Because as the Apostle Paul says, well, there is a continuity because wheat seeds grow wheat, Tomato seeds grow tomatoes. Sunflower seeds grow sunflowers. But until you've seen a sunflower, if all you had to look at 
was the handful of seeds. If that was your only reference point, in the same way that the only bodies we get to look at are these ones, glorious though they are, how on earth are we to imagine what resurrection life is going to be like? There'll still be us, our bodies, real bodies. It'll still be you, it'll still be me. Our bodies are dignified in the present by the eternal significance of what we do in the life. But our resurrected bodies, they will be so mind-blowingly different. They'll be, they'll be freed from all the brokenness of, of sin and the, and the corruption of this life that, that we might feel like we are currently just the equivalent of, of husks, weak, unimpressive, broken, racked with pain, or just, I don't know, plain uncomfortable. And yet one day will be revealed in all our glory. That's the hope of Jesus for our bodies, that one day we will share in the very glory of the Son of God himself. I reckon that's hope for our bodies in anyone's language, right? How about we pray? Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that because of your great love for this world in rebellion against you, you sent your one and only Son, that whoever might believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that you set apart all of your divine prerogatives, everything that is yours as the Word that is God, that was there at the beginning. And you became flesh, broken flesh, broken for us, that you might be raised, that we might be raised. And so, Father, we know that there is so much pain and turmoil and so many questions that that we've not even touched on today. So many things that I think every heart beating in this room, every mind just churning at the moment reflects on the different challenges that we have with our body, its frailty, its weirdness, the things we love, the things we struggle with, the way the world thinks about them. Lord, we want to bring all of that before you and and pray that you would continue to renew us, to transform our mind, that we might know your mind, that we might see ourselves as we are, ultimately, in Christ. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we have an eternal hope in Christ. Help us to know it. Help us to live it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.